you may ask. How did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with New Radio Media, and we'll spend the next hour talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. If you want to attempt to get in today, it's 844-999-9249, or you can email the show at Let's Talk Torah, no apostrophes, Let's Talk Torah at gmail.com. You know, this summer, some people think is winding down. We're already in August. My wife says to me, yeah, the summer is almost over, which is true. It's also uh, still has four weeks to go. For some people, five weeks. And uh, But today, we are going to have an amazing show. We have an amazing guest. Um, you must listen to this story. You will be, you'll just be blown away. You'll be blown away. But before we get to my guest, today's topics... Um, of course, we'll still talk about love. That seems to be my topic the last couple of weeks. We're going to talk about racism. We're going to talk about anti-Semitism, all wrapped up in one. We're going to talk about the Torah commandment to love the convert. And at the end, of course, we'll have our usual under two-minute message from Rabbi Jonas and Goldson. And, of course, our letter and word of the week. So in this week's Torah portion... One of the commands in the book of Deuteronomy, there's a lot, a lot of commandments, a lot of repeats, a lot of explanations. One of the commands is to love the convert. And in another location, when it says you have a command to love the convert, the Torah says, because you were strangers, because the word for a convert in Hebrew is actually a stranger. The word is ger. Ger means stranger. We translate as convert. But really, really, it means stranger. So God says, you were a stranger in Egypt, therefore you have to be nice or love the convert. So one of the things we're going to attempt to answer today as we talk to my guest is, first of all, why is this so important, which some of you may think is simple, and what's the real connection to Egypt? And, as, and if we weren't strangers in Egypt, so now I don't have to be nice to a convert. So we're going to get into this with our guest. Uh, my guest is is Rachel Beck, owner of Rachel Beck Photography, soon to be author of Finding Your Way, public speaker, recent friend of mine. Rachel, how are you today? I'm doing well, Rabbi. How are you? I am great. I would say long time no speak, but we spoke already this week. How are you doing? And thank you for having me on the show. I am doing fantastic, and it is my honor and pleasure, and we will have a great time. That question, by the way, of why it's important to love the convert, um, we're, don't worry about it for now. We want to. I'm going to touch back on it later after we talk about your life a little bit and things you've gone through, and I think we'll come up with some fantastic answers. But before we start, besides myself, not too many people know who you are. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, Rabbi. Thank you for asking. Um, I was born in India, um, in South India, in the state of Tamil Nadu. My birth mother passed away two days after giving birth, and my birth father 
tried to take care of me with providing milk and any other sustenance, sustenance a baby would need. Um, he was unable to, so he brought me to a woman named Pauline King, who is the founder of an orphanage, who is in the process of building or is going to be building the orphanage, and she took me into her home. Um, and she saved my life. I was a very sick baby. And to go well forward in time, um, I ended up being adopted by um, a wonderful Jewish family in the state. Okay, and then we, which we'll move along to as we as we discuss what happens. So, born in India, those who don't hear me so clearly, not Indiana, but India, which is far away from most people. Most people that I know haven't been there. Even though I actually have a friend on LinkedIn who it seems he's hanging around there for some reason. And I had a social studies teacher in India. That's as far as it goes. But um, you were in an orphanage and you were adopted by Jewish parents um, in the States. Just curious, which state did you live in at first? Um, the first, I actually arrived at JFK in New York, and my first home was in New Jersey. New Jersey. Actually, after the show, I will be heading towards New Jersey. We'll probably do it a two-day trip. We'll stop in Pittsburgh, but we the goal is to end up in New Jersey. Okay, I like New Jersey. Lots of kids there. Um, so anyone who is watching live or watching on our um, on on our archives, there's a picture up there of of Rachel, and you'll notice not hard to notice. Um, Rachel does not look American. She clearly looks like she's from India, like she's from the Middle East. And so here you have someone who's from the Middle East and at the same time also is Jewish and proud of being Jewish. So let's start from the beginning. When you went to elementary school, um, were there any difficulties, any bullying, maybe people made fun? or how, how, What's your memories and recollections of elementary school? Rabbi, my elementary school was the most loving, nurturing environment. For me, um, I went to Solomon Schechter Day School, Pennsylvania. Um, my my issues were I out more is when I switched over to the to public. Interesting. Are you still there? I'm still here. Okay. No, we just can't. hear me. No, I hear you. There was just uh, some clicking in. They were working on it in the in the other booth. No problem. All right, so you were in Solomon Schechter, which is a generally speaking, Solomon Schechter is a conservative day school movement set of day schools. They're all over the country. And as long as you were in that day school, um, everybody was very accepting. Well, they're all Jewish, I guess, but they certainly didn't care because that's how children are, by the way. They did not care about your looks, where you were from. You had, I will call it good friends, but then you moved on in what grade to public school? I went to public school at seven, which is a difficult time to transition. Anyway, it's in the middle and new in the school. Um, so I switched over in seventh grade. Okay, so what happened once you made that switch? Now, this was still in Philadelphia? This is still in Pennsylvania. This is still in Pennsylvania. So when you made that switch, so what happened? I realized that I didn't really belong in any group. Um, the school was a mix of Caucasian population, African-American population. And it just wasn't an Indian population, and I had lost the comfort of the Jewish community that I had in elementary school. Uh-huh. Okay, so 
So did you suffer then? In other words, it was a it was we'll call it Caucasian. That was your word, not mine. So if it was a Caucasian school or an African American school or mixed, so there shouldn't have been a racism problem per se, but maybe an anti Semitic problem. It wasn't anti Semitic. It was just trying to find my way in the school. You know, it was a mixed school, but there, it was just a, it was very hard to navigate. Which middle school is very hard to navigate. So you felt, uh, I guess, rudderless. Is a is a pretty good word. So you had had difficulty adjusting. You weren't comfortable. But was there any outright um, feelings of racism, of anti-Semitism, any of those things, or for that part, you were safe at, safe in school and safe at home? I felt safe at school um, and safe at home. A lot of the racial issues that I encounter are from people who don't know me usually from complete strangers. Why don't you give me an example? I was thinking about a a couple of them really stand out. Um, When people lock their door, when I walk by them, and I'm only 5'3", I've had situations recently where I've been in a store and the store clerk said, "I, I will only call you brown girl from now on which I went back and I addressed the situation. Um, I've been told that I can't afford to shop an establishment when I was trying to buy my parents a gift. No one was waiting on me, and I kept asking why. I've been asked if my money's okay when I've been in the bank, if my check is a legitimate check. And I'm thinking of some other ones. Um, and just the prejudgment that people have when I walk in somewhere. It's very, it's, it's very hurtful. I mean, I would like to say I can only imagine, but the truth is I cannot imagine because I don't have people saying that to me when I walk into a store. They may say other things to me, but uh, it seems they, they never ask me if my check will be good. Um, actually, you, had, you had told me... Yeah. You had told me... Um, I'm trying to remember the story you told me where people would come over and see you. Um, you have siblings, and as your adoptive parents, there's other siblings? I don't remember what you uh, yes, telling me. Yes, my parents have um, two biological sons. And um, my mom and dad felt strongly that there was a lot of children in the world and they needed homes. So they decided with their third child to adopt a child. So I, I would say lucky you. So when you would I go out... I feel very lucky. Yes. When you would go out with your family... Um, did people look strange? Did people ask um, inappropriate questions? Were people uh, um, insensitive is probably a good word. Yes. Um, and my mom and I still come across situations even to this day. Um, you know, it's in the 80s when I grew up, not a lot of mixed families like there are now. So I think people would stare or they would ask questions. Mother and I will be together, and someone will ask if I'm her caregiver, if I'm her nurse. Um, so it's it's changed and it's changed and shifted. I don't think we get stared at as a family as much as we used to because there's more mixed families now. Okay, but certainly in the '80s, that was not the most pleasant thing that you had to go through. So you get to high school. So was it e- once you got through seventh and eighth grade middle school? So was it easier to navigate to to become comfortable in high school? 
Not at all. I, I just didn't feel like I could fit in anywhere. Um, and I was just ready to move on. And I fell in love with school after I public school. So I, I'm sorry, I got cut off again. So what happened? I'm sorry. That's okay. No problem. Try it again. Um, I don't, high school, I struggled with a lot of many levels, a lot of high school. Um, I just didn't feel like I in anywhere. Uh, so you had, a, so you didn't fit in, but you, you had, if they weren't best friends, did you get to go out with, with other classmates to, I don't know, movies, ice cream, places to go, beaches, things to do? Were, were you able at least to go out with people or you were just like a loner? No, no, no. I was a very social person. I did track and field. Um, I did other sports. Sports is kind of my way of um, fitting in and being part of the group. And I had girlfriends, and that experience and social aspect, I I did enjoy. Okay, good. So at least I don't want you to suffer your whole uh, um, high school teenage years. So girlfriends you had, friends you had. Um, was there ever a time where your friends would stand up for you if somebody was harassing you, whether it be for racism reasons or anti-Semitism reasons? Did they? Did your friends stand up for you, or they? Or they left you? Uh, I guess out on a limb is what they would say. You know, school. Um, in when I went down to Florida and I started, you know, college down there, I didn't have anybody in my face about racial issues and. How- um, when I left and I moved, I had experiences. And when I was with friends, they did stand up for me. And they still do to this day if it happens. Those are good friends. If they, not, good friends. To, I mean, we, we in school talk about bullying. It's one of the, um, I don't want to say catchphrases nowadays, but uh, everyone's worried about bullying. Even you hear it from senators sometimes. And we, we do talk about it. We have these different videos and training things for children. Just the concept of one boy or girl standing up for a friend means everything. And when somebody knows that they're not alone, it it, it just it just it, it helps. It, it lets them move on with life. So um, okay, so now let's back up a little bit. Okay, we got a basic history, and now because you've been through a lot of these things, I wanted to hear your first your impression, opinion, thought about that question we started with. Why do you think it's important? It's a double question, so you don't have to have the answer to both or either. That's my job. Um, Why is it important for the Torah to give me a command to love a convert? That's number one. And number two is the Torah says I have to love the convert because I was in Egypt. Like, who cares? That should not be something that's a make or break reason for me to have care, compassion, love for somebody who maybe doesn't look like me, somebody who doesn't act like me. They're part of the faith. They join the Jewish religion. They have to be treated like anybody else that's Jewish. So what's your thoughts on that? I'm, I'm very interested about learning about this, being that my parents had me converted at a very young age. Um, and I was accepted. I was accepted within the Jewish community. Um, no one thought any different because I wasn't biologically, you know, born through the mother. Um, no one treated me differently. So I think that if people keep accepting people who convert to Judaism 
still be open to meeting people from all different backgrounds. Very good. Excellent. Well said. Um, I'm going to tell you a few ideas. You'll see how they work. I don't know if I'm going to have time for it. I, I actually um, copied your poem. I know you have a poem that you put online. And a lot of the stuff you talk about is is care and concern and I care for you and and you should care for me. But we'll, we'll see if we have time for that poem later. But um, here's some interesting ideas to think about. Number one, um, you've heard the phrase, um, calling the kettle black. Right? In other words, yeah. Yeah. in other words, or the kettle, I'm sorry, the kettle calling something else black. I said it wrong as usual. The, say it again. I always get it wrong. Go ahead, Ben. Sorry, they can always help me out over here. The pot calling oh, the, the kettle black. Oh, the pot calling the kettle yes. black. Thank you very much. We got yeah. that one in good. In other words, we were strangers. We didn't like how we were treated. So that much sometimes you need in your DNA that 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 if, if you suffered in a certain way, you have to make sure others don't suffer the same way. Sometimes people are just the opposite. If they suffered from bullying, the first time they become a, you know, in any position to bully somebody else, it's like their turn. That's one idea. Um, another interesting thing to keep in mind that uh, Judaism is a religion, not a race. Even though we say racism, anti-Semitism, but Judaism is a religion. If you're part of the religion, you're part of the family. And here comes my music, and time is flying as also. So, Rachel, please hold on through the break. I am talking to Rachel Beck, soon-to-be author of a book that I forgot to write down, Finding Your Way, talking about racism and anti-Semitism with Rabbi Tzvi on Let's Talk Torah, and we'll be right back. If you need a fingerprinting service, A1 Fingerprints is the place to go. A1 Fingerprints specializes in fingerprinting for teachers, students, law enforcement, and more. A1 makes the process so easy and simple, you can be in and out in 10 minutes. A1 does walk-ins, so appointments aren't necessary. A1 Fingerprints, located in Southfield on Southfield Road. Go to a1fingerprints.com for more information. That's a1fingerprints.com. It's that easy. Maple Lane Golf Club is a 54-hole golfing treasure located in the heart of Sterling Heights. Maple Lane Golf Club offers immaculate greens, a top-flight pro shop, and inexpensive green fees. For convenience, book your tee time online at maplelanegolf.com. Come out and enjoy a great golf experience. Try our 9 and Dine special, 9 holes of golf, and enjoy food and refreshments in the Clubhouse Bistro. That's Maple Lane Golf Club in Sterling Heights. Check us out at maplelanegolf.com. Advertising your business these days can be challenging. Traditional radio and TV ads are expensive and, frankly, a bit of a crapshoot. Not to mention, the audience for over-the-air material is shrinking as more and more of us demand to see and hear what we want, when we want. Advertising on new radio media is a solution. With our live streaming programs that are also available on demand, your message is always ready when your customers are ready to watch and listen, all for a fraction of what you'd likely have been paying for other ads. NewRadioMedia.com. Call Buzz Van Houten at 248-939-9999 for more information. Working for New Year's Times, kind of how I've been living. Feeling all a little deflated, kind of how I've been rolling. Going till my cereal show, never slowing the rest much. 
And we are back. And my guest, Rachel Beck. And Rachel, I'll get to you in a second. I just have to say hello to somebody who just walked in from, I guess, Mars. I haven't seen him so long. But uh, our friend Peter decided to walk and say hello. Peter, how are Shalom you today? and how are you, Rabbi V. Jacobson? It is good to see you as always. It's always good to be seen versus being viewed. Yes, yes, yes. Well said. So, Peter, because you walked in, so you got to hear this story from Rachel. This will blow your mind. Fire away. All right, so Rachel, um, we're talking to Rachel. She was adopted from India. She was adopted by Jewish parents. Uh, for the most part, she didn't fit in too well once she left Salman Schechter after seventh grade. Okay. Um, but for the most part, her friends uh, stood up for her with anti-Semitism, with racism. And then we get to the famous period of time that uh, I guess they asked people, where were you uh, by 9-11? And I remember I was actually in school. And I was outside the building with my class. We were like, I don't know, hanging out in the parking lot. And my principal comes and yells at us, what are you doing outside? I said, what's wrong with being outside? Don't you know we're under lockdown? The Twin Towers are coming down. And of course, I, and I was, was at the gallery restaurant at Maple and Telegraph. See, we all, we all remember. Right. Well, if you remember in the calendar, um, Rosh Hashanah was a few days later. Correct. Okay. So, Rachel, are you with me? I'm here. I'm listening. Great. Great. So, Rachel, if you could tell over that story that we talked about, um, what happened when you went to synagogue down in Florida that Rosh Hashanah right after 9 11? Okay, so I was meeting my family, and it was the Rosh Hashanah, you know, after 9-11. And I got there early, and the place where the synagogue was running out, you know, to the big crowd for Rosh Hashanah. And I was there, like a bagel, a cup of coffee to give to my brother, and I was waiting for my family. Um, And I was going to walk in, um, and there was someone that I encountered who asked me to leave. Because I didn't, I don't want to say the word, but he thought I looked like something that I wasn't. Um, oh, no, Rachel, you don't have to feel bad. He's, he, you could tell me straight. He didn't think you were a beautiful young woman? No, he, he looked at me and he said, you look like one of them. One of them. Um, and he asked, <laughs> one of them. <laughs> Rachel is so one nice. She doesn't want to say the guy accused her of being a terrorist, you understand. Right. <laughs> totally. Right. You know, we're not shy <laughs> on using the words. Okay. But okay, but Rachel, you're much nicer <laughs> so, in words. Okay, go ahead. Thank you, Rabbi. So, um, what, and my family still hadn't gotten there. Um, and I'm not a non confrontational person, so I was a little bit of a deer in the headlights look. What hurt the most about all of it, one, I was kicked out, um, and at this time, my family was arriving. They saw what was going on, and they had their support. There was a group of Jews in line walking into synagogue, and they saw what was going on. No one said anything, um, and it was, it was hard for me. It was very hard for me. It took me four years to walk back into synagogue with my parents for Rosh Hashanah, and that's because I worked with the really wonderful rabbi who made me realize one person doesn't define the whole religion. So I learned forgiveness now through the whole experience. <laughs> I think people need to learn a, a lot of things. Peter, I, my friend Peter walked in and he's like desperate to say something about It's really a terrible story. What is it? I'm not sure what's worse. What's worse, that the guard was, was just clueless and he said, you don't belong here? 
or everybody standing and watching and not saying a word? Well, you have two. You have two things happening at one time. Um, you have the guard who is not being professional in his role that everybody is welcomed. Number two, the congregation in its entirety should have been embracing the situation and saying, stop, you know, whether it is a Jew or a non-Jew entering this house of worship, everybody is welcome, period, end of story. But we've seen this time and time again where we hear stories of people visualizing a crime or an incident but refuse to partake in stopping it. Yeah, Rachel, you didn't know that Peter, who just walked in, was in law enforcement. Is was very hard who to knows? keep track. So that is nice to meet you. Yeah. It's my pleasure. <laughs> yeah, w- when you come to visit us and sit in studio, I'll tell mm-hmm. Peter to come in and and uh, we'll all share time together. Definitely. Okay. So um, so so you so you learned so you learned from that story that well, unfortunately, not everybody stands up, which is one of the things we're trying to to talk about that when you see a wrong being committed, you stand up for what's right. It's not such a big deal. But um, I'm going to shoot ahead a little bit. Um, I, I know, I guess after college you went to Israel? Um, I went to Israel my junior year of high school, and that was a life-changing experience for me on so many levels. Yeah, so you told me you were on a kibbutz. Um, and something on that kibbutz happened that uh, that really was life changing. Could you uh, go, could you remind me the story? Yeah, absolutely, Rabbi. Um, I was two weeks on kibbutz Nachshon, um, and I was just walking along, and a girl approached me, and she said, "My family would like for Shabbat dinner. Would you like to join us?" And I thank you. I mean, I I was really humbled and honored. She was Indian, and I got to have Shabbat dinner with an entire Indian Jewish family. And it meant the world to me, that they went out of their way, that they approached me, that they invited me for Shabbat. I thought, you know, I had never met another Indian Jewish person. So that that was, a, it was huge on so many levels for me. And how long have they had been in Israel? Um, I was only. I was in Israel. I was on a um, a teen tour program. Okay, and the family that you joined for Shabbat dinner. How long have they been living in Israel? Um, I don't remember. I just remember their warmth. This is in the nineties. I just remember their warmth and compassion, and lighting the Shabbat candles with her, and looking at this girl who was my age at the time, sixteen, seventeen who welcomed me into her home, and it it felt like, okay, you're not the only one in the world that's Indian. Have you been able to keep a relationship with the family since uh, that time? I mean, I know we're going back 20-plus years. No, but it would be wonderful. I would love to find them. I would absolutely love to find them. If you can't, I know Rabbi Jacobson will find them. Oh, see, another job. <laughs> I don't have enough jobs here. But uh, I'm sure, you know, uh, Peter Ruchel actually is writing a book, and I think she's going to be starting her speaking tours. We have to get her up to Detroit. Uh, Ruchel, why are you writing this book? Okay, so for a couple of reasons. Um, the main reason, Rabbi, is to inspire others and to lift them up. I've been through a lot of tragic things in my life, and I'm just starting to realize at the age, being in your 40s, 
that there was a reason for everything that I faced. So I decided to write a book and hoping that there's other people who are coming across the issues that they know that they're not alone. Okay. When is that book coming out, by the way? Okay, so it's supposed to come out by December 31st. So it will be or um, before then. Um, and I'm very excited about it. I, I really... I really want to help people in the world to not feel. To not feel. I missed the last word you were cut off. To not, you want people to feel not. Alone. Not alone. They have not somebody alone. out there who's listening. So your book, when you open it up, who are you dedicating the book to and why? Mm-hmm. I dedicate it um, to my family, to my husband, to my mom and dad, uh, my three nephews and my niece. Because they are, I am who I am because of my mom and dad. They instilled every value that I have in me, that I was taught to be Sadaka, everything. That the world is about not me, it's about who can you make a difference, who are you going to impact. So, Lador Vador, from generation to generation, you want to pass this on to the next generation to heal wounds of the past. Yes, and so my goal, I share with the rabbi, is um, part of the proceeds from the book sales is getting donated back to the orphanage for me and my husband. That's Fan- our goal. Fantastic. Hey, that's one of her charities we'll talk about later. I'm not sure how much time I have left in this break over here. Um, Three-ish. Oh, I have three minutes? Two now. Oh, cool. I, I was just reading my numbers <laughs> wrong. So um, so we're going to get back to that orphanage. I, this was just a funny question. Um, you actually are using a pen name. I am. Which I can't pronounce, but it's V. Lakshmi. Lakshmi. Hey, pretty yeah. good. Lakshmi is very good. Lakshmi, if I can did pronounce you want that, that, What did you want that with? What did I want that with? First of all, why did you pick a, a pen name? I picked a pen, uh, pen name for one, two main reasons. One, to honor uh, my Indian heritage. That was the name that I was given in India when I was born was Vijaya Lakshmi. Okay. And the other reason is is because um, I really wanted, I didn't want anybody claiming paternity or someone coming out of work. Well, I'm still in the process of biological you're kind of getting washed right, out there I, a little right, bit. I lost you on that last one. Could you, if you don't mind, Rachel, one more time? What was that second reason that you said? The second reason was I didn't want anybody coming out claiming paternity to me when they uh, weren't. Very good. Right. Very so, because we talked about this, um, so Peter, in other words, we um, Rachel told us earlier that her mother passed away pretty much right after childbirth, and Rachel has been looking for her father, which could be. Um, Traumatic to say the least, but um, it's pretty easy for people to raise their hand and say, pick me. Correct. So I guess if you pick an unusual name, it'll be a little easier for people waking up and saying, it's me or it's not me. Well, you know, I hear some music in the background, so you know what that means. That means that we're going to hold Rachel through one more segment. And I'm going to say goodbye. And you're going to say goodbye, so thank you for coming, Peter. Um, Rachel, you're going to hold it with us one more through one more break. We're going to talk some more with Rachel Beck, author of Finding Your Way. You're listening to Rabbi Tzvi on Let's Talk Torah, and we're going to be right back. Doors. 
Plus, the latest LiftMaster garage door openers, and the toughest retractable screens on the market, all by the push of a button. Tarno Doors is celebrating its 50th year anniversary and is the recipient of the 2016 Subcontractor of the Year from the Home Builders Association. Tarno knows doors. Tarno knows doors. If you need a fingerprinting service, A1 Fingerprints is the place to go. A1 Fingerprints specializes in fingerprinting for teachers, students, law enforcement, and more. A1 makes the process so easy and simple you can be in and out in 10 minutes. A1 does walk-ins so appointments aren't necessary. A1 Fingerprints, located in Southfield on Southfield Road. Go to a1fingerprints.com for more information. That's a1fingerprints.com. It's that easy. Hi, I'm Art, and we're the crew at Tuffy Walled Lake. We've been in Walled Lake for 20 years, and through our knowledgeable staff and customer satisfaction, we've become quite the cornerstone in our community and to our discerning customers statewide. We know how important your vehicle is to you, and we take pride in our impeccable, affordable service, and we're trying to get you back on the road as quickly and safely as we possibly can. Please stop in and see why everybody comes from all over to get their car serviced at 784 North Pontiac Trail in Walled Lake. And we're back with Rachel Beck. Rachel, how are you? I'm good, thank you, Rabbi. Good, my friend Peter has left the studio. Um, if you watched, I know you've seen some of my shows on uh, probably going back 12, 13, 14, 15 weeks ago. Uh, Peter was my uh, partner. Um, I guess, training me in, helping me out. We had a good time. We have a good relationship, Peter and myself. And um, it was nice of him to drop in and say hello. So I, I do appreciate that. So we're talking about your book. So you're writing the book because you want people to know they're not alone. They're not the only ones suffering. They're not the only ones that have, uh, as we like to say, trials and tribulations. Um, a person could work through it. What do you think you had in you that helped you get through because and we're not going to get into all of them today. You have a a fascinating life, a hard life in certain ways. But um, what are some of the things you think helped you get through some of those difficulties? Whether the racism issues, the anti-Semitic issues, or or other health issues, what what helped you get through them? What helped get me through a bit um, was my family, my husband, my best friends. I had a lot of people. Who believed in me, and I think believing in makes a big difference. They held my hand when I had to cry, when I was going through things. So I never felt alone, and it gave me a reason to keep moving forward because because I had them believing in me. So the amazing power of friendship, and maybe we've come up with another answer to our original question. And the question we started the day with was love the convert 
because you were strangers, or love the strangers, really the correct translation, love the stranger because you were a stranger in Egypt, because when you love somebody, which we've talked about a lot, to love means to give. Uh, if I'm just a taker, I don't love. To love means to give, whether I give my time, whether I give my money, whether I give uh, um, uh, moral support or anything else I can give a person, physical labor, whatever somebody needs from me. Giving creates that I will love the person I'm giving to. That's, that's the way it is. Parents love children. Children, not as much parents, as much as they like to say they do. So, so the Torah is saying, and I was, why do we need love? We need friendship because when a person goes through stuff, they need friends. They need to find out who's that person that really does care about me. So when we love the stranger who's going to go through more issues than others, um, which we could talk about, um, that that in itself will help that convert, or we're, we're using the word stranger. How do you like that for an answer? Perfect, because I completely agree with it. I believe that without the support system that I've had for my whole life and being married to who I am and having the parents and the family I have, it's lifted me up. They've lifted me up. Yeah, you know, I'm glancing at your poem. It's such a nice poem that I probably don't know how to read so well, especially because I'm wearing my contacts. But um, you write over here, see me, hear my laughter and joy. Don't strike at my joy. See me and don't judge me, for I don't judge you. I won't lock the door as you walk by. Okay, we talked about that earlier. But see me and know I'll be your best friend and your biggest champion and will fight for you because you are a beautiful soul. And I think if that message comes across, that's part of what really everybody needs. You don't have to be a stranger to need that kind of friendship. But um, but everybody needs that friendship. Is that what you had in mind when you wrote those lines in the poem? What I had in mind is um, I wanted pe- when I meet a person, I don't see their outsides. I see I, I tend to connect with them on many levels, and I see them for who they are. I see their soul. I see the light that shines within them, and I always give them a hundred percent benefit of the doubt. When people see me, that's not what they do. Um, so I was asking, could someone see me the way I see them? Could it be extended back? You know, it's interesting because there is a beautiful concept um, that it says, the, the Hebrew phrase is kemayim apanim el panim, which means like water face to face. In other words, when I look into the water, I see my reflection. So what I, in other words, what I see is pretty much hopefully what I get. And you are trying to teach people, I see you as a person, I see you as a, as you wrote down, as a beautiful soul, and really the tragic question you're asking back is, how come you don't see me the way I see you? And that, unfortunately, is the, is the challenge, if we want to use such a word, of, of racism, of anti-Semitism, that I could love you in my heart, uh, but for some reason you won't love me. And that, that in itself is a tragedy. Did you say what? And that's what I'm hoping to just have people open their eyes and not click their doors or not, you know, I have a lot of people who hold their purses when they walk by. I I just would never do that to someone. So I was asking through the poem, that's what came to my heart, because 
could you see me that way too? So did you put this poem in your book? Um, no, I put the po- I wrote the poem and I do poetry as and you know and writing too. I felt that it was something I saw. I didn't know how to bring it out. Advice to someone when you're working with emotions, write, 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 and write. It's what came to me. I just sat down and it's what flowed out. I, which I tell you, I like it. I think it's beautiful. I think it's it really gets your point across. And I'm, I guess I'm hoping, because I haven't read the book, even though most people, I read their books first, but uh, I didn't have a chance to read your book yet. I have to wait for the publication. But I, I think that's what you're looking for with your book. And the same idea when you go to speak in different congregations, in different uh, areas, in different cities, that you want people to understand that I look at you one way, I look at you as a, as a good person, as a good citizen, and there's no reason you don't look at me back the same. Just like, you know, Peter said earlier, that uh, obnoxious guard, if we could use that word, who didn't look at you as a person, right? He, wasn't, he, he didn't understand who and what you were. He didn't look at you the way he should have looked at you. And, that's, and that becomes a tragic thing, which, which you've amazingly um, worked your way through. Other people become bitter. You're not a bitter person. I'm not because I don't, one person's actions don't reflect everybody else's actions. So I have friends, religions, and backgrounds, and so I don't judge one person for everybody else. I don't think that that's a fair assumption. Oh, it's definitely not a fair assumption. Um, yeah. As we're winding down, um, have you ever gone back to see the orphanage? I have. I've done two back to Family Village Farm. Um, wonderful. It's a wonderful place, and I want to help the children for a long time. You Not only do they help kids, but they help women and grandmothers, women who have been abandoned, take care of the children. And same with other women, the elderly, they take them in too, who also help, to help take care of the children. And when I'm there, Rabbi, it's a wonderful experience in India for me because I'm a, I'm a majority. Right, right. And what about Israel? I know you were in Israel as a, a in high school. Did you ever make it back to Israel? I haven't been back to Israel since then, but it's something that I've been wanting to see Israel as an adult. You know, not 16-year-old eyes, but in my 40s. I, I would like to see what my perspective would be now. Well, especially your perspective is certainly different than others because you are also an amazing photographer. Some of your pictures are on, I guess, your LinkedIn site, on your website. And, uh, you know, it's so interesting. I have a son in Israel right now. He sends me back some some pictures of the, um, I guess, of the mountains or whatever. And I send him back a message. And I say to my son, or I text him, I said, um, you know, the scenery is beautiful, but I could call up Rachel Beck and get a beautiful postcard picture that would look be- more beautiful than your picture. I want you in the picture. Oh, in the picture. Yeah, is it like- well, thank you for your compliments about the photography. Art, art is in my soul. It's in my passion. Um, and I'm starting, as I've gotten older, to follow more of my art. And that's what's guiding me. 
So do you, so do you, you do you try to and as when you take pictures are you just looking I mean I don't know how photographers work exactly but are you looking just to take beautiful pictures or are you looking that the picture has to has to teach a lesson are you looking for a message I guess is the word I'm looking for like when you went to India if you're looking for a message you'll go to Israel you're looking for a message in your pictures or you just want to take these outstanding gorgeous pictures I'm looking to tell a story. When people ask me what kind of photography you do, I say I want to tell a story. I don't just want to put somebody in, you know, click, take a photo, and then go to the next um, I, I want to tell a story. I want to use my photography to help organizations. It's important to me. It's important to bring a level of respect to what's going on in the world, and those are the issues that I'm taking photos of. So if you're trying to tell a story, do you do you sell those pictures to someone? Do you do you post them somewhere so people can get the message? How does that work? I give it back to the organizations and in return they can use them for PR marketing, which will end up, you know, giving them an opportunity to raise money for the organization. Oh, I see. So, so you so you'll go into an organization and your pictures will tell the story of what the organization does or is or represents. Absolutely. That's my goal. That is amazing. You know, um you asked me um if the if loving the convert has anything to do with Passover. So I sent you back a quick answer. I mm-hmm. told you all the commandments, or many of them, believe it or not, go back to um, leaving Egypt. Just like the the idea of loving the convert goes back to Egypt, because again, we need to remember what we went through, and we didn't appreciate it, and uh, forget about more than not appreciating it. But you you have to learn to become sensitive, and really, this is what we've been talking about a lot. Because when when you're insensitive, it hurts. And and we were hurt when we were in Egypt. So God says, okay, you, you know what it's like to be hurt. You got to stand up and make sure you don't hurt other people. Similar, it says God protects, and it's a similar verse. It's right next to it, uh, taking care of the widow, taking care of the orphan. The same idea that God says that you can't be hurtful to someone who's very sensitive and in a hard situation. You got to take care. And I told you, um, Rachel, we're winding down. We have about a minute and 15 seconds. Would you like to leave us with a message? To be kind, to be a good human being, and open your heart that the person standing in front of you could be your next best friend. And to not be judgmental and not, and not critical. And give somebody a chance. That was actually a quick message, but probably much better than all the long-winded messages that I get to go through. So, um, Rachel, it's been fun. I appreciate it. I hope very much when you come up to the Detroit area, we'll get to meet. Um, We got to get you some speaking places out here, out in Detroit. There's all kinds of places that will bring people in to speak, tell their stories. I think you have an amazing story. I think you're an amazing person to come through with your positive attitude, to write a book, to look to help people, helping the orphanage out in India, um, searching for your roots, um, and trying to help people be better. So again, Rachel, thank you very much for coming. It's been fun. 
Thank you, Rabbi, for having me. Okay. Be well. Bye. All right. You're with Rabbi Tzvi, and we're going to be right back with Rabbi Jonas and Goldson. Maple Lane Golf Club is a 54-hole golfing treasure located in the heart of Sterling Heights. Maple Lane Golf Club offers immaculate greens, a top-flight pro shop, and inexpensive green fees. For convenience, book your tee time online at maplelanegolf.com. Come out and enjoy a great golf experience. Try our 9 and Dine special, 9 holes of golf, and enjoy food and refreshments in the Clubhouse Bistro. That's Maple Lane Golf Club in Sterling Heights. Check us out at maplelanegolf.com. At Murray's Park City, we're known for offering customer service you won't get in any chain store or online. But don't take it from me, just listen to what our customers have to say. The employees at Murray's are knowledgeable, courteous. They make you feel like you're at home. Pick up a can of Seafoam Fuel System Treatment for only $6.99 or a 5-quart container of Mobile One Motor Oil for just $28.95. Murray's Park City and Pontiac Trail at Maple Road in Walled Lake. We've got the parts you need when you need them. A study from Johns Hopkins researchers indicates a high-fat diet may lead to the development of new nerve cells in your brain that influence how much you eat. But it's also been known for decades that the brain continues to form new nerve cells well into adulthood. So for now it appears the process occurs not only in the parts of your brain associated with memory and a sense of smell, but also in the ones that control your various body functions including hunger and thirst. One researcher believes that your brain functions this way as part of your body's survival mechanism. When food is abundant, it generates cells that will make you eat more and make you store excess calories as fat for use when food is not readily available. But the problem with humans, particularly those in developed countries, is that food is almost always readily available. So the more you eat, the more fat you store and the greater becomes your appetite. With another Prescription for Your Health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. Okay, and we're back. And did we get through to my guest? Did we? Uh, how are we doing over there? Are we working to get through? I'm trying to call him, and I don't know how to use my phone. That is a terrible thing and probably very obnoxious if you're watching me. But I just sent an email, not getting through. So um, it looks like my usual guest, Jonasin, is not getting through right now, or we're not getting through to him. I'm not sure why. Then we're just going to move along with the program. Lots of things to keep talking about. Um, I did want to end. We talked with Rachel before. Um, there was another fascinating answer that I didn't have a chance to get through, to get to. And the answer is from a Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch. He lived in the mid-1800s. He was a, a rabbi in, in Frankfurt in Maine, out in Germany. And he answers what it has to do, what Egypt has to do with the, with the convert um, why those two are connected to each other. So he says like this, a very interesting, you got to really think about this one. He says like this, and I should have told this over to Rachel, I think she would have uh, appreciated it. He said, if you think about it, when we're in Egypt, so what happens? We're strangers, and the Egyptians were mistreating us. So he says a very poetic line, he says, mistreatment leads to hate. So in other words, the whole concept, we were in Egypt. The Egyptians mistreated us. They turned us into slaves. 
I mean, you can decide what came first, the hate or the mistreatment. But uh, Rabbi Hirsch says the mistreatment came first. And after I can mistreat you and I've turned you into not a full person, which, by the way, we talked about a couple weeks ago with our um, guest from the Holocaust Center, that, um, that the whole idea of the cattle car was to mistreat um, Jews. I mistreat you. I turn you into a subhuman. Now I hate you. Because that's what I did. So mistreatment leads to hatred. So remember when you were in Egypt, they mistreated you. It's the lesson. It's not so much the Egyptians as much as the actual lesson. If I mistreat someone, then um, if I mistreat someone, then I will come to hate the person. Therefore, if I treat you as a person, I will automatically come to love you. So that's why Sam Shavol Hirsch says it's important that when we say love the convert because you were in Egypt, it's that almost juxtaposition, like remember why they came to hate you. We're good? I'm trying to see if Angel's good. Angel says we're good? Okay, I'm waiting for Angel to give me the word. I think my guest is here. And I'm waiting for a thumbs up. Angel, are we good? We are good. Yanison, sorry there was some confusion in the phone call. Are you there? I apologize. I got my times mixed up. No problem. We're in different time. Are we in different time zones? We are. See, that's a problem. We're going to have to do something at Detroit where it belongs in the in the <laughs> central time zone, which would help for a lot of things, by the way, like uh, having to start diving at eight o'clock. But anyways, Jonasen, you are on the clock. Go for it. Okay. Well, um, they're having torrential rains and flooding in the northeast in St. Louis. Here, we're observing the 25th anniversary of the worst river flooding in U.S. history. Uh, what do the sages tell us about the weather? It's interesting. They say everything is in the hands of heaven except for cold and heat. Seems to mean everything is in the hands of heaven except the weather. How's that possible? Right? Is there anything over which we have less control than weather? Uh, and what's more than that, based on this week's Parsha, the sages teach us that everything is in the hands of heaven except the fear of heaven. So what? which is it? Uh, if there, there can't be two things, each of which is the only thing, that's not in the hands of heaven. So really what the sages are telling us, they're telling us two sides of the same coin. Just like we can't control the weather, we can't control anything that happens to us. There's only one thing we can control, and that is our response. So when it's cold outside, we bundled up. When, it's, when it rains, we put on an overcoat. When it's hot, we stay hydrated. And it's exactly the same when it comes to the spiritual climate of our lives. When things go our way, we should be grateful that we have merited Hashem's blessing, and we should look for ways to show our appreciation. When things don't go our way, we should see these times as opportunities for self-reflection and growth and improvement. With this mindset, then we'll be able to weather every storm. Yonason, well said as always. That's from Yonason Goldson of Ethical Imperatives. Thank you so much, and we'll be in touch. Have a good job. Good job. Okay. As my time is really rolling down, Tony, you ready for my next poster? Okay, let's get that next poster up with my um, not too much time left. So the next letter in our poster is the Vav. The Vav is pretty much a straight line. One of the simplest letters makes that V sound. Also is used sometimes um, um, to, to, for what we call the kudos, for, to know if it's an O sound or an O sound. Um, we're not going to worry about that today. The Vav is a fascinating letter and word. The letter Vav actually has a meaning. The meaning is a hook. The word Vav means hook. And a Vav happens to be a connecting 
letter. So all over the place in the Torah, we're connecting one verse to the next using this hook to say, I connect, I'm connected to you, what, what we said in the last verse, connected to the next verse. Um, even on a Torah scroll, most columns, like all of them but six, actually all of them but five, um, have the letter Vav as the first letter, almost as a hook to the column before. Everything is all connected. And that's what I was trying to point out, that we've been talking about loving the convert the whole time. Loving the convert is connected to the verse of taking care of an orphan and a, and a widow, and that's connected to the verse that says that God's the one that's going to judge and God's it's the one that's going to take care. And all of that wraps around into the vav. Um, my time is running out, but uh, how much is my time running out? Yeah, you're running out right now. I'm running out right yeah. now. Oh, I better say goodbye to everybody. I thought I had a minute. Okay, here we go. Thank you to our wonderful sponsor, Liz. I couldn't do without you. Thank you to my wonderful production team today. Tony, Ben, Angel, I hope I've left you with some food for thought. Until next week, I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk to Our New Radio Media. Until next week, don't forget to think about it.